Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, September 6th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each and every one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. Well, have you ever played the game Two Truths and a lie. It's a wonderful icebreaker game uh, for groups of people, whether they're brand new to each other or have been friends for a while. The rules are very simple. One person shares three facts about themselves. Two of the facts are actually true facts. One is a downright bold-faced lie. The challenge is for the rest of the group to spot which one of the three is the lie. I'm going to give it a go this morning. Uh, If you want to play along with me, here we go. I have performed theater on stage in Japan. I have cooked a meal at the White House. I have eaten balut in the Philippines. Now, for those not familiar with this fabulous delicacy, balut is a fertilized duck or chicken egg that's eaten when the partially developed bones inside the egg are soft enough to chew. And yes, It's totally a thing. You can look it up on YouTube. All right, so you ready to vote? We're going to do this by a show of hands. Here we go. How many of you say A is a lie? Raise your hand. Okay, how many say B is a lie? Raise your hand. A few more, okay. And how many say C is a lie? All right, well... The correct answer is C. I have been to the Philippines three times, and balut was offered to me, but I respectfully declined. Uh, One, I only like my eggs scrambled. Two, I am not really sure about chewing on little uh, chicken bones in there. Uh, Boy, am I happy that I did when I saw a buddy of mine who was a pastor, uh, how sick he got after he tried it for the first time. As for A, during my senior year of college at the University of Hawaii, I was fortunate enough as a theater major to travel to Japan and perform in Tokyo at the National No Theater. As for B, it's also totally true, only I didn't prepare a meal at this White House. No, I actually cooked it at this White House. This is the United Methodist Campus Ministry Residence at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And both Jody and I lived in that house for three years while we were going to college at UH. Ten students were packed into this house. We all had weekly chores assigned. Each week, two of us were the cooks. We had two communal meals together, Monday dinner and uh, Friday breakfast. And everyone kicked in $2. So the cooks had $20 to budget to spend on feeding 10 people for two meals. It's not $2 per meal, it's $2 for the week, 20 bucks for two meals. Full disclosure, this was the late 80s, so $2 happened to go a little bit farther than it does today. But this was a wonderful education for a young 19-year-old college student having to traverse to the grocery store to pick out nutritional meals for 10 people. I mean, I learned how to stretch a dollar. I learned how to cook for a a decent-sized group, 10 people. And I learned a few go-to meals that I've continued to use throughout my life. Uh, Baked lemon chicken, beef stroganoff, spaghetti with meat sauce, 
uh, shoyu chicken, not to mention pancakes, scrambled eggs, Portuguese sausage, and of course rice, because in Hawaii we eat rice at every meal and major snacks. Plus it's cheap when you're working on a budget. Welcome to a brand new sermon series that I'm starting entitled Tasting Grace, Discovering the Power of Food to Connect Us to God, One Another, and to Ourselves. It's based on a book by Melissa Diarabian. Melissa was the Season 5 winner of the Food Network's Next Star Reality Cooking Competition. She's a member of St. Paul's United Methodist Church in San Diego, and I'm friends with her pastor, Reverend Rob Fiesler. In fact, Rob is the one who suggested uh, that we do this as a potential series. And there's seven other United Methodist churches in Southern California who are going to be experiencing this series over the month of September, October, and or November. Now, I've chosen for us... Uh, to start this weekend. I believe uh, St. Mark's is also starting this weekend in San Diego. I'm super excited about this series. Now, I'm not a foodie by any means, but I do enjoy cooking. Here's a short video that was produced when Melissa's book was first published. It'll give you a sense of what we're in for this together. Let's watch. Food is a central part of our everyday lives, and our relationship with food is complicated. We're infatuated with recipes and dieting and food photos and making dishes that are restaurant worthy. But in our obsession, could we be missing out on the many joys that food can bring? What does God have to say about our current food culture? As Christians, we might think about food and its ability to bring people together around a table. And that is right and good. But looking at food through the lens of the Bible tells us that a meal is so much more than that. Food is an invitation into delight and love. Meals are God's invitations just waiting to be opened. Tasting Grace is the story of those invitations. Now there's a couple other reasons why I'm excited about this series. Food is a central part. um, Sorry about that. Uh, In addition to brainstorming ways to approach this series with six other of my colleagues in ministry, uh, Melissa is actually going to be an integral part of our series. She's creating short videos to help us wrap up each sermon, just for us seven churches that are participating in this series together. Plus, we hope to be able to have one to two special online Zoom events with Melissa uh, sometime over this next three-month period. Uh, One will be a meet and greet with the author to talk to her about anything that came up in the book as you were reading it or studying it. Um, But another may be a prepare a meal and eat together online experience. Uh, Stay tuned, we'll give you more details as we find them out. But not only that, but Pastor John is also having a companion series on Wednesday nights during our Food for Thought time entitled Additional Recipes for Tasting Grace. There's 16 wonderful chapters in Melissa's book, and I'm only going to be preaching on seven of them. So Pastor John has agreed to pick out seven more chapters to tackle on Wednesday nights. And if you enjoy uh, what you hear today, we hope you'll join us on Wednesdays from 6.30 to 7.30 online. Again, the link you can find on our church website or the church app. Well, this week's theme is creation. The title of chapter three in Melissa's book is Finding God in Culinary Chaos, an Invitation into Creation. She writes this. The very first sentence of the Bible says, In the beginning, God created. 
He is our creator. He created light, darkness, water, sky, plants, animals, and humans. I can imagine God with the artistic joy of a young child building an entire world out of modeling clay, gleefully and carefully choosing every detail and then stepping back to evaluate his work. And God called the whole creation very good. God loves to create. And he crafted us with the ability to create too. When God created humankind in God's image and told us to be good stewards of creation, we set out to find a way to turn uh, the produce that we found and cultivated, the seafood that we harvested, the animals that we hunted, into something that not only satisfies our bellies, but also satisfies our souls. Humanity could tell that food was wonderful and good. So good that humans felt the need to offer some of what they cultivated or hunted or fished to God. Humanity saw the glory of God in what they ate. Both men and women could see what God provided to nourish our bodies and to help sustain life was indeed not just good, but very good. So good that we felt compelled to share that goodness with others. And food became a way to connect us with one another and to celebrate. Truly, food brings us together. Our Bible reading for today uh, also comes from the book of Genesis, but surprisingly, it's not the creation story. We're in chapter 18 today, smack dab in the middle of the Abraham and Sarah saga. God called Abraham at the right ripe young age of 75, Sarah uh, was a spring chicken at 60, uh, to leave everything behind and go to someplace brand new. God promised that they would become the parents of a great nation, which was quite impressive given the fact that they were childless at this time. Did, did I mention that Sarah was 60 and Abraham was 75? Yeah, well, our story today is classified as a theophany, or a story that has a God appearance in it. Actually, there's three desert travelers who turn out to be divine messengers. We might call them angels. And we as the readers know more about them than Abraham and Sarah do. Chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. Well, those of us who live here in the high desert of the Antelope Valley know uh, what it's like in the heat of the day, don't we? Especially this past week. Uh, man, it's triple digits uh, and only going to get hotter. Well, the middle of the day is the best time to take a nap indoors with the AC on. And almost out of nowhere in this story today, three strangers come walking up to Abraham and Sarah's tent. Verse 3. Abraham said, My Lord, if, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought in, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring you a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. Notice how proactive Abraham is here. And he didn't try to pretend that he wasn't home, or, or dash out the back door to avoid being a host. No, in the ancient Near East, hospitality was one of the most important characteristics that any individual or community could have. Abraham went out of his way to make sure that the traveling guests knew they were welcome. He says he's going to throw a few things together. Uh, but listen to what actually takes place. Verse 6 and following. And Abraham hastened to the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. 
Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf he prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. A few weeks ago, when we were studying Jesus' parables, we came across the parable of the yeast, and we found out that uh, when a woman put some yeast into three measures of flour, scholars told us uh, once you add the necessary water, three measures of flour would produce about 100 pounds of raw dough pre-cooking. Like, that's a lot of bread that they're going to put together. But of course, I say this all the time, in the Bible, uh, numbers always mean more than simply that number. They often point to other things. Three measures could very well be a divine measurement, alerting the reader that, wow, something amazing and holy is about to take place. Abraham and Sarah give these travelers a desert They offer their very best to the guests that they had absolutely no prior connection to. And and they do it through food, amongst other things. The hospitality shown by the couple, though, is not lost on God. And we get the impression that God is so impressed by their generosity, by opening their home, by being willing to share what they had and do it in abundance, that a special blessing is given. Verse 9 and following. The messenger said to Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind them, and Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself. Thanks to this couple's hospitality and creativity, they were about to be creating something new themselves. They just didn't know what it was going to be. This is some 24 years after God's initial call to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's now 99 years old and, and Sarah's 84. And it's no wonder that she laughed when she was told that she would be nursing a newborn at the age of 85. Later on, after being called out for her laughing, Sarah is told by the angel, is anything too wonderful for the Lord. Such a great statement, isn't it? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? In fact, you may need to write that down on an index card or a post-it note and stick it somewhere where you'll see it every day for the weeks to come. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? When we honor God with our best, our creativity, our hospitality, the best ingredients of our lives, if you will, God delights with us because God honors our creativity. God sees our good works, our offerings of our lives as a sign of our, God, of our love for him. It doesn't earn us a place into heaven, but it's a, the result of the, the grace and love and forgiveness and salvation that we have been given by God in abundance. You see, we are partners with God in creation. Creation wasn't something that just, that happened, you know, thousands upon uh, millions upon billions of years ago. No, creation is something that continues to happen each and every day. Melissa de Arabian writes, why did God make us creators? God gives us what he holds dear, what he himself treasures. He made us creators out of his love for us. In Isaiah 43, 7, he says that we are created for his glory. God gave us the ingredients and the ability to think, to work, and to build so that we would create as God did. Anytime we create, anytime we do something that adds value to our earth, we get a tiny glimpse into what God was doing in early Genesis. 
One of the things that I love about Melissa's book is that she's very transparent and open about her own story and personal journey. In chapter 3, the chapter on creation, she goes into quite a bit of detail about the journey that brought her to where she is today. Originally, she had big dreams of practicing business law. She was going to earn an MBA and a JD, and then, as she put it, crush the world of mergers and acquisition contracts, all while wearing sleek and fashionable suits. Her mom died by suicide just a year before uh, she graduated from college, which, as you can imagine, was quite devastating. So when she graduated, she said she did something quite rash. She skipped graduation. She wrote a letter to the grad school whose offer she had accepted, and she unaccepted it. And then she moved to Greece to work on a cruise ship for one year. When her year was up, she returned to the United States, entered Georgetown's MBA program, and to help pay for her uh, uh, master's degree expenses, she worked as a live-in cook for a large family. She said it was like being Alice on the Brady Bunch, cooking three meals a day for this wonderful family, learning all the quirks and, and, and passions and, and tastes that they had and preparing accordingly. She said she began to fall in love with cooking as she shopped and cooked and prepared these daily meals. And she did that for a semester, and then she moved on to a more flexible job. But she kept cooking. She kept cooking for herself and for her new roommates. And then after receiving her MBA, she worked in corporate finance uh, for Disney in Burbank, California. So she said, my, my food budget grew quite considerably. And Melissa loved hosting dinner parties for her friends. She became a cookbook junkie, as she puts it, finding numerous recipes that she was eager to try and go back to over and over again. A few years later, she transferred to Paris for a job leading the merchandise finance team for Disneyland Paris boutiques and outlets. It's fun to read about what she thought life in Paris was going to be like uh, versus what it actually turned out to be. And spoiler alert, it was nothing like what she expected. She actually felt overwhelmed and completely lost. And she didn't even have her cookbooks with her in order to make the comfort food that she loved so much. She writes... But it's funny how God works in those spaces of emptiness and weakness. When we release our grip on an identity that we've clung to, God can do so much. And we can finally hear about his plan for us because we aren't too busy being fabulous to stop and listen. Sometimes when we feel as if life is all falling apart, it's actually all falling together. She soon discovered her safe harbor through the food shops of Paris, where shop owners were never in a hurry and were always eager to share their expertise, even to a foreigner who spoke very poor French. It's here that a transformation began to take place in her life. She writes, fortunately, I was in the center of the food world, and it was there in Paris that I fell in love with food. I gathered ingredients from small, specialized stores created by true experts in their field. I brought cheese from a purveyor who sold nothing else. I bought produce at a place called Palais des Fruits, Fruit Palace. My fish came from a fishmonger's shop, and my feet, a meat from the chilled, bright white counters of the local butcher. At the Italian market, I found homemade pastas, and I popped into the bakery daily for fresh bread. I shed my rigid notions of what recipes called for, mostly because my recipes were thousands of miles away, and began instead to purchase food that most appealed to me, 
And then I created meals from those ingredients. She says it was, it was in Paris that she found God in the ingredients. Everything was fresh and delicious, and she began to learn the story that each ingredient took in coming to her table. She called it the life my food had before it hit my table. She writes, these ingredients, these godly works of art, inspired my cooking and soothed my frayed soul. It was as if God started planning supper, and then I showed up to the kitchen mid-project. Some vegetables yet unwashed, the meat still wrapped in the white paper, the utensils strewn about on the counter, messy evidence of creation. But I got to pick up the ingredients and continue the creation God began, without a cookbook and without any expectations, because during those first few months in France, I didn't have any friends who needed to be fed. In those early days, only God and I were at the table. I learned to trust both his ingredients, and my ability to honor them. Well, you'll have to read the rest of the chapter to find out how uh, she met her husband, Philippe, and then what brought them back to America, and then her experience of being on the Food Network's Next Star competition. It's truly a delightful chapter to read. And though my culinary journey is nowhere near what hers is, I was inspired to create in the kitchen as well amongst other places, beginning in college and continuing ever since. One of the things I love about Melissa's book is that at the end of each chapter, she has a few bullet points in what she calls an RSVP, RSVP to the invitation of, and then whatever the chapter theme is. In this case, is its creation. But for our sermon series, for these seven churches in CalPAC that are connecting with her to do this, Melissa has personally created individual videos for us to use. These RSVP invitations. So let's listen to what she says about the RSVP into creation. God is the original creator, and we are creators too. And food can be part of that creation. So what does society say about... Oh, let's try to run that again. Donnie, can you redo that? God is the original creator, and we are creators too. And food can be part of that creation. So what does society say about us being creators with food? Well, one message is that we have to be really good at it. That it's not worth getting into the kitchen unless you have a ton of really great recipes or you're really smart in the kitchen and you can make something really fancy. The other message that we get from society is sometimes that our time in the kitchen is kind of wasted. In other words, the time that you spend making food for yourself or for your families or friends probably should be shortened and be spent doing something much more important like, I don't know, scrolling through Instagram or whatever. What does God say about creation? Well, God is the original creator, right? It's right there in, in the Bible. God created. It's like literally the first two words of the Bible. And then God made us in his image. So we are creators. Even if we're not doing something particularly creative at the moment, right? We don't have to be artists to also be creators. God also says that the work that we put in around food 
is worthy work. God is inviting us into creation and being like him. Like imagine, imagine God creating the world and like making, you know, man like out of Play-Doh and the joy that that creation brought him. And now we get to join that creation. So God creates a tomato, right? He, he, he grows it up from, from a seed and we're the waterers and the planters. But God is the one who transforms the seed into a tomato. And now we show up on the scene and we get to continue that creation. We get to work right alongside God. That's the joy that God has given us in making us creators. And we can tap into that with food. So let me give you a couple of ways to RSVP into the invitation into creation. One is... You don't have to be a fantastic cook to tap into the creator in you in the kitchen. Just have a couple of really simple recipes that you can execute easily without having to look them up. Simple ingredients, something really easy. Even executing something really simple in the kitchen can help you tap into the joy of being a creator. The other tip I have for you is to lean in to trusting the ingredients. Once you learn how to make a salad, well then open up your fridge and pull out whatever vegetables you find and have a little bit of fun trusting the ingredients. You can find God in those ingredients if you look for it. And that will invite you into creation. Friends, I'm so looking forward to sharing this series with you. And whether you love to cook, uh, you somewhat enjoy cooking, or basically you, you endure cooking because you have to eat, uh, I'm guessing that we all love to eat. My prayer for us is that the series will be just as the book title says, one that draws us closer to God, to each other, and even to ourselves. May you embrace the gift of being co-creators with God. And I know some of you may just have laughed out loud right there at the thought of that, uh, of cooking and being co-creators with God. But you know what? You're in good company there. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Thanks be to God for the wonderful gift of food. And may we be open to whatever it is that God has to teach us. Amen. Amen.